We thought you were done for. Yes. And you went on without me. Look here, Rob. The supplies are running out and the bearers are getting out of hand. Do you think I should have stayed with you and sent Irene on alone? Why, no, Jasper. Not for the world. It wasn't easy going on without you, Rob. But we left Salem with you. The only one we could trust. And when he caught up with us, he swore that you had died. You see, we, we had no reason to doubt him. What happened, Rob, after you came to? I don't know. I don't remember a single thing after I got that blow on the head. Not until the next blow. That was two months ago. No. Why, it's more than five years. I know. They're gone. Clean gone. What I did or where I went, it's all a blank. I was working on the docks in Durban. That's where I got hit by a loading crane. And that brought your memory back? Perfectly. I came to in a hospital in Natal. I knew if I could ever get back to you, my old friends, that you'd be waiting for me. Oh, but naturally. Waiting to hand over my share, my full share. I've kept the agreement, you know. Remember how we drew it up in Kalo's Hotel in Mozambique? Here. One half of any and all properties discovered in the Tanganyika country. That's quite right, old boy. We found it, didn't we? A whole diamond field. That is, I found it. I made you rich, didn't I? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and joining me, as usual, is... Troy Gwynn. Yes, indeed, and we are back again to return forever to our 1940s <laughs> Universal Horror Train. We're jumping on there. This is a this is far from an empty car, but it is a strange one. Uh, this this time around, the yeah. uh, Universal Horror Films of the 1940s presents us with yet another sequel to The Invisible Man. Um, mm-hmm. This time out, The Invisible Man's Revenge, released you uh, June 9th, 1944. All of uh, 77 minutes, actually closer. I, I remember it being like 79 minutes. I think that might be closer to true. Uh, directed by Ford Beebe. And mm-hmm. uh, I love the phrase, suggested by the novel The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. Yes, suggested. <laughs> Which that sort of means you walked by a storefront and saw the title on a book and thought, you know. Hey, hey that could be a film. <laughs> not, not the film that we made in 33, but a film. No, no. Not at all. All right. This time out is uh, the fifth and last. Well, unless you can. Do you count the Invisible Man? You know, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man? I guess you kind of have to. I mean, yeah, but but that sort of spills over into the 50s, so I guess we won't be doing that as part of this series. So I think for our purposes, that's that's, this is the end. This is our last, well, won't be our last encounter really with the Invisible Man, but. We will encounter him again in one scene at the very end of our series. So, yeah. <laughs> this this is true. Voiced by the actor playing him in the first sequel. So there's uh-huh. there's right. that. Nevertheless, the Invisible Man's Revenge. Um, interesting. Uh, to to my mind, this is a weird. And I'm going to be interested to see your reaction to this because this has not been a film that I've returned to very often over the years. And rewatching it for this a couple of times reminded me why. Uh, it's uh, well, well, let's put it this way. What is what is your what has been your familiarity with the Invisible Man's Revenge? Uh, I actually did not. Uh, I don't recall ever seeing it. Oh wow! So this would be uh, close to a first viewing. It, yeah, I believe it was. Uh, I believe it was my first viewing. If I had seen it, it sure didn't jar any memories. I don't believe that I had ever seen it. And of course, I had that Invisible Man set, but I've been holding it back, knowing that we would be getting to this eventually. And so, yeah. 
Honestly, I've had that for a while, but I purposely did not watch this until the time came. Uh, so yeah, so that was it was it was not one that I was familiar with. Well, uh, I had watched it. Prob- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and yes, uh, um, there it's it's problematic. <laughs> we can sign out. So. Well, yeah, we'll 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 get into a discussion of it. I'm going to be I'm going to be interested to discussing. see a lot a lot to talk about though. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see if your if your thoughts on this one match up with mine because uh, I had only ever I, I I have to admit it only ever watched this one once before. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when the all of the films came out in that fir- that initial DVD set, because uh, it was the, it was uh, one of two of them at the time that I had not seen, and so of course I, I desperately wanted to see it, and um, I remember there I, I, I my memories were vague, and I knew mm-hmm. there had to be a good reason why I hadn't revisited it often, and uh-huh. now I know why because. Um, I don't think I like it. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> there are things that I like. There are things in it that I like. You know, there are some things that I like in it. But on the whole, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 got some issues. It's got a lot of issues, and not all of them are ones that I can brush aside. Yeah, um, yeah. It's well, let's let's start here. Um, the, my my thoughts are going to be a little ramshackle simply because I know what's going to happen is I'm going to mention one thing and then I'm going to jump or I'm going to that's going to lead me to something that has absolutely nothing to do with the topic at hand and I'm just going to keep going but I don't care. Let's you mean start. like you, you mean like every other episode we've ever done, right? <laughs> yes, I guess I guess I am now at the point yeah, where our I'm, listeners haven't yeah, if our listeners haven't figured out that dynamic yet, then you know I don't know what I don't think we can help them. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I I suppose at this point I'm I may be over analyzing the analyzation of. <laughs> Boy, I came close to the wrong word there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> here, let's start here. Uh, we have John Hall returning in the lead, but he's playing a different character than he played in Invisible Agent. Okay, yeah, not a problem. Right. That, that that doesn't really bother me. I think John Hall is a is is a pretty good actor, and I get a kick out of him on screen. Uh, I've been I've been watching some of the uh, Arabian Nights films that he pops up in with Maria Montez here the past few months. And so I've kind of got him in mind as being that kind of light actor like this. So seeing him play an unrepentant, unrepentant psychopathic bastard in this is <laughs> kind of weird, I'll admit. Well, and did it, here's a question. So is that, here right off the bat, let's talk about that. Because um, do you think that that was kind of uh, courageous or clever on the part of the of Universal's casting, the fact, do you think that through the audience who had seen Invisible Agent coming in expecting another heroic role for him? And was that like, was that clever on the, on the part of the studio to cast him uh, as a character and expect, knowing that the audience is going to expect it to be another sympathetic role? Probably, uh, probably a clever move because, well, for, for a couple of other reasons as well, at that point, at that point in 44, he was well known as kind of the 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 good looking uh, you know the good looking guy playing against Maria Montez in, in you know these adventure films and therefore always playing a good guy. So I, I know that from what I've read anyway, he really enjoyed the idea of playing this role because it gave him the opportunity to play an asshole. It got him to mm-hmm. play so so much against type for him that uh, he he kind of leaped at it. He thought he thought this would be great, and uh, 
the uh, and, and I as an actor I see it as a as a as a brilliant exercise for someone who is uh, who may have felt that he was being really really typecast. This is something that would break him free of that to a degree, at least to the degree you know to in as much as these this would definitely be a film that would have a certain audience no matter what and this would be where him playing you know a murderous psychopath and so mm-hmm. the lure for john hall is obvious the wisdom of casting uh of casting someone who is handsome and has good screen presence uh, is is a, also a wise move as far as uh, Universal is concerned because then you 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 are kind of throwing uh, a handsome looking guy out there. Who, although I gotta admit he's less handsome once he gets rid of that that pencil thin French must, mustache. But still, he's <laughs> still a good looking guy, and he's one of those things where it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, okay, I understand everything about this. But the problem is, and this is going to sound strange considering how much I love the 1933 original. The character is such a prick. Uh, he is. There, there's nothing redeeming about this guy, no. and no. the only it's things, really yeah, the only things in the story that actually get you on the character side, the the character he's playing, Robert Griffin, the only thing that gets you on his side ever, are things that the movie undermines ridiculously, to mm-hmm. the point where it it becomes impossible as with the story as presented to really feel he's anything other than just a, 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 a psycho, a crazy person uh, uh, at, at the very least uh, uh, an asshole who honestly the world would be better off without even before <laughs> the invisibility kicks into gear, you know? Well, what it's lacking is because one thing you said, right. It, even, even in the original film, there is some sympathy to be had for, Claude Rains's character, you know, right. even though he's a villain, he's the understanding is that the serum that he takes is progressively deranging his mind, you know, and unbalancing his mind. Yeah. So that really isn't an aspect of this film. He's, he's already nope. deranged in this film. He's already the, there's not a feeling that there's any, and it's never really honestly even mentioned in the film, but we, because of the past films we've seen, we've kind of come to expect that we think that he's going to at first be, character that we're going to have some sort of sympathy for and that you know we think like maybe the the serum will start to unbalance him you know but that's not really the case the serum doesn't really he's already unbalanced and we can we finally feel it figure that out uh and yeah and that's a tough thing about that too is there's just nothing to like about this guy and and one of the things you might be hinting at is that the only time that we might have sympathy for him is because so many of the people he's dealing with are also not very likable you know either but there's there's a chances we could be on his side uh, because of uh, people he's associated with that are that really don't don't well, they have don't much. Paint, they don't paint themselves in a kind light. No. No. Well, at least okay. Let's let's get to it. Um, yeah. I probably the same as you was really excited to go back to this film because it had been so long I had not seen it in a while. And as soon as I looked at the cast list, I went, "Hey." John Carradine, Evelyn Anchors, Gail Sondergaard. Hell yeah, yeah baby. Yeah, I know. Hell of a cast. And maybe, as originally written, it would have been really interesting to have Gail Sondergaard, John Carradine, and Evelyn Anchors in this film together, along with a lot of other great character actors that we could, you know, Hallowell Hobbs, although his role is pretty small. Yeah. 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 Uh, Alan Curtis doesn't really get to do anything. Leon Leon Errol gets quite a bit to do as. Uh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. Uh, as the 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 comic relief, we'll talk at length. Yes, we will talk about the, that. Yes. <laughs> Lester Matthews is really good in this as Sir Jasper. Um, uh-huh. But um, let's talk about the fact that. I got all excited because, hey, the Spider-Woman is back, baby, with Gail Sondergaard. And I'm pretty happy about that. I look at this and I... And then I see the film and she's in two scenes. Two scenes. Yes. I know. I know. And as you watch the film, and this is where the spoilers kick into gear, people, so prepare yourself. Yes. Yes. It becomes painfully obvious that at some point, while filming... They decided to wuss out big yep. time on yep. the the characterizations of the, the of Lady Irene, played by Gail Sondergaard, and her husband. And then the more yep. digging into the story you find that, that that you do, the more you realize, oh, they really, really did. So what was what's obvious while you watch the movie, and this is one of the reasons why I keep shaking my head every time I watch it, is. It is clear that the uh, Lady Irene and Sir Jasper characters were not originally going to be these guileless innocents who were, you know, who didn't, you know, don't deserve any kind of retribution for anything that they've done in the past. Originally, as written, there was a damn good reason for Robert Griffin to be angry with them and to suspect them for having done the worst they they could imagine. Well, it's the part of the story that interests you the most when you're watching it yeah. first, you know, to say, and now I forgot, I got to ask you in, in any of your research, did you come across anybody with any explanation of what happened with Gail Sondergaard? Because oh, well, my feeling was that she must've been called away to do some other film. That is why they had to just suddenly like, Oh, that character just disappeared. You know, is, uh, is what I had thought figured. Everything I find uh-huh. points to the fact that every well everyone seems to be of the opinion and there are there are things to back it up that originally the the character she plays and the character Lester Matthews plays the the you know Lady Irene and Sir Jasper the as written they actually did know that Robert Griffin was still alive and they left him there on purpose mm-hmm. okay and uh when he shows up, uh, as as is, I mean, you can't avoid it in the movie. The thing that just stands out like a big freaking broken thumb, pointing toward criminality, is that they they do their best to soften it. I, I, I feel they probably refilmed some a, a couple of a couple of things or just softened the dialogue just a smidge. But it is clear that Lady Irene drugs Robert Griffin, yes, so they can get yes. him out of the fucking house. Yeah, and, and yet, yeah. and yet. They try really hard to pretend that she didn't when that's yeah. the only explanation for him passing out after he takes a drink. And, you know what? Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's just and they try really hard to, to you know, yeah. wow, see yeah. how see how deranged he is. He, he's he passes out after a single glass of alcohol. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I'm sorry, but being unhinged does not make you more susceptible to the effects of alcohol. You might as well just wipe your ass with that explanation and toss it in the fucking toilet. No, <laughs> you drugged him. And as the scene plays in the movie, she is very obviously, as the scene is in front of us, not going to tell her husband that she did this. But in the original story, no, 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 she drugs him. It's obvious 
and then mm-hmm. they dump his body in the fucking river. Yeah, yeah, I know. Not and walk him out of the house. No. no. And let him fall into the and him him on his own fall into the river. They dumped his ass there. They were trying to get rid of him. Yeah. And well, he, and, and here's and here's the thing. Let, mm-hmm. Let's let's point to my my favorite little clue to, to to make this out. I mean, although they're if you watch the scene, if you've got another way to read it, people, please honestly tell me what it could possibly be. But she takes the, his little handwritten note there that you know they mm-hmm. that they that he brings in as his. Uh, you know, his long held, you know, his five year long held proof that they were in uh, in this whole diamond mine thing together. And she folds it up. And of course, what what everybody's waiting for is to toss it into the fucking fireplace right behind her, which yeah. probably is how it played out in the original script. Yeah. But she's like, well, no. And she just folds up. We'll keep this until he is, you know, of a saner mind. And we and and, and he mm. and, and and you never see that again. And it never gets brought up again. And you want to know why? Because it was burned. It got it was gotten rid of. Yeah. But we're going to pretend that, that, that that's not true. We're going to pretend that that's something that's still there in the story, although it's obviously not because no one ever brings it up again because the sheer fact that she took it proves their ill intent. That night, because yeah. she's playing the whole scene with her great Gail Sondergaard, that serpent smile, you know, there, yes. that, you know, that you know, they, all her actions that you know, yeah, this is this is our Spider Woman again, you know, hiding the knife behind her back, you know, while she's, you know, while she's uh, uh, dripping syrup all over you, or whatever, you know, and so <laughs> it's yeah, and and but what's it's so crazy the way it plays out because okay, because we get this story that he. He mentions they were walking in the jungle, all the three of them, and right. and, and and this supposed limb fell on him and knocked him out, right? And and they tell him they they thought he was, they left him with another person that had told him that he had died, you know, playing right. innocent. And all that. So one of the things that's the question that I think was going to be really interesting had it played out, and you know the way that, like you're saying, the way that they originally intended the characters to be is, we don't. It, it's kind of vague on whether both of the Herricks, you know, were in on it together, or if it's possible that Lord Herrick doesn't actually know that Lady Herrick cold-cocked, you know, cold-cocked Griffin, like, it kind of hints that she's the one who hit him with something, and we're not totally sure that Lord Herrick knew that she did that, you know, like, there's the suggestion that he might have been in the dark about it, and she might actually know what's going on, but I love the line where she's, you know, I think it's really significant, or would have been a very significant line, where uh, when they're talking about what to do with Griffith, she says, we can't have this hanging like a club over our heads. You know, like, almost like she's giving away the fact that, oh, that, she, yeah. that's what she did, that she hit him with a club, you know, but I think that would have been interesting to play out is the fact that maybe Lord Herrick might actually be innocent in this and not totally know what actually happened, you know, or that we might come to find out they both knew or something, but we never, we never get that, but there's just enough of, like you said, there's just enough of these conflicting things that we can never feel sympathy for Lord Herrick, you know, because it's kind of like as it goes on, it's like they're trying to set him up as being a character who's being victimized by the Invisible Man. Right. But because we've had these first scenes where they obviously drug Griffin and, and like you said, dump him in the river and, and treat him pretty terribly. And then even later, just kind of his uh, his complicity with the, the local... Uh, commissioner of police or whatever the guy is, you know, that comes over, you know. Well, they, yeah, they now, kind of, now think about it. That's a great example. Yeah. Think back to yeah. that scene where the the, the, the shyster lawyer and uh, right. the, the, right. the, sh- the shoe mender come in there trying to trying to essentially uh, blackmail 
the Lord, uh, the Lord Henry. And you, you, you watch that scene, and quite honestly, the character that Lester Matthews is playing there, I'm sorry, Sir, uh, Sir, it's Sir Jasper Herrick. I, said, I think right, I said right. Sir Henry like an yeah. idiot. But yeah. watch how he plays that character in that scene. A man in control, yeah. able, able to handle this kind of idiotic BS, shoot these mm-hmm. idiots down. And do it without even even coming without even getting up off the couch, versus the easily flustered lunatic babbling like a babbling like a a, a child who can't even comprehend what he's going to do when put yeah. under the gun by uh, by uh, Robert Griffin later in the film. Now one could argue that yeah yeah, yeah he's that way later in the film because he's being you know he's he's being attacked or threatened at least. By uh, an invisible man, which is you know, I'm assuming that we're we're to we were to take that that would, you know, shake him to his core and yada yada. Right. I get it. Yes, okay, you're right. But at the same time, it becomes this thing where the character is being played in the opening sequence, where we meet the character, and then that scene with the the lawyer and the the, the shoemender character, um, uh, Her- Herbert Higgins, you get you get. Two very different characters, and they don't mesh very well. And I think, to the, to my mind, that is a good example of the way in which this film really it, it feels so obviously altered from yeah. its original intent that it's kind of a car crash. It it is like watching a disaster unfold in front of you. That you know they they they, they rethought their approach to the entire story. You know, yeah. the, the, essentially, the approach to how are we going to think about the the, the the quote unquote villains of the piece? When at some point maybe they realized, wait a minute, the the guy who plays the Invisible Man in this movie is an asshole. Mm-hmm. The people he wants to get revenge on are assholes. Who are we rooting for in this fucking thing? <laughs> well, that yeah, that's uh, that's that's very true. Uh, you're two. You're only two. Like your only two, I guess, most noble characters are the ones that get the least screen time, you know, which is your, I guess, your, your, your male and female romantic leads, you know, whatever right. the, that, you know, um, yeah. Uh, and, and think about it. One of the most egregious things too is do we really accept that what we've seen of Gail Sondergaard's character, that she's one who'd totally like lose her mind and become bedridden, uh, after oh. her encounter with the invisible man? No. Uh, you know, yeah. I in mean, no, I found no that way. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, yeah, and so that's how they write her character out of the film. And it, to my mind, it's pretty obvious why they wrote the character out of the film. They wrote her out of the film because the majority of her sequences after her second scene in the movie would have been her conniving, plotting, finding a way to protect herself and her family from this crazy person. And, and probably getting more and more obviously, overtly evil as she has to do certain things to protect them. Mm-hmm. So and by her doing that sort of stuff might have at least given us a little bit more of understanding for why Griffin's character, why Griffin does what he does, you know, right. maybe. And that would have been to my mind, an incredibly interesting film, but yeah. I think maybe it's, you know, somebody at universal, maybe several somebodies at universal in 1944, a little too late in the process went, Hey, wait a minute. What are we doing here? Um, mm-hmm. You know, none of these people are sympathetic except the two people that we have in like three scenes in the whole damn movie. What are yeah. we doing here? 
Uh, so I think there was an obvious rewrite of this sucker mid-production where they decided to soften things up, change things around, and there, I, I have no proof of this, I will admit, but uh, you're, you're not going to be too shocked to learn that the parts of this movie that make me grit my teeth down to the nerve endings uh, <laughs> are, the, are the parts that I think were probably added to the film to, to soften it up even more, which is all the fucking around with the goddamn darts, all the yeah. stupid comedy with <laughs> uh, Leon Errol. It, it, yeah. it's, and it's the same damn problem we had in Invisible Agent where you've got a pretty good idea here, an interesting story. It's not perfect. It's got its problems. But every, every few minutes, we have to stick some stupid comedy in the thing and totally disrupt it and make it that thing where you're rolling your eyes instead of wondering how they're going to do whatever they're going to do. And yeah, in my no- I was going to say, I'm sorry. I was going to say, yeah, in my notes about Leon Errol playing the Herbert Higgins character we're talking about is that, is that, is there a purpose to this character other than comic relief? You know, is there oh. anything he brings to the, you know, and I, and I also think that the film to me, I mean, I know that they, I know that in a lot of cases, you know, they're, they're, they're figuring a lot of the audience is coming to see the invisible man effects. And, and for the most part, John Fulton's work is up to its usual standards, but that, yeah, that scene in the bar with the darts, man, does that go long it way goes to, on and easy. on. Yeah. It, it feels, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong. I probably should have timed it just to be sure, but it feels <laughs> like 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah. 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 And we're talking about a 78-minute-long movie, and 10 minutes of it is a comedic dart sequence? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my... And, and, and what do we gain? What What is the... How does this dart sequence push the story forward? I ask anyone to explain. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what part of the story is advanced during I mean, that the, entire yeah. sequence. The idea is this how is this is how they're getting, I guess, gathering money funds, is that they're going and he's, he's, in a, he's allowing this... This uh, helping, uh, yeah, but the, he's the invisible man. He, he can walk, again. he could walk around and steal money just, out of the he, till. He just, exactly. There's got, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, any, okay. Gonna, gonna back away from that for a moment because I want to talk about some other things. So, I'm, I'm glad to see that your feelings about this film seem to mirror mine a fair amount, which is that there's an interesting idea here, but they cripple it so yeah. effectively in softening the the harsher edges of the story as originally intended, as far as we can tell, that it becomes a movie that, I I swear to you, I think the look on my face throughout the majority of the running time of this movie is that that raised eyebrow, head tilt of concern and puzzlement that just keeps me staring at the screen wondering, why are they doing this? Or why are they ignoring that? Or, huh? A lot of huhs. A lot yeah. of huh. You know, the interesting thing is this was written by our old friend Bertram Milhauser, you know, right. who's our Sherlock Holmes writer, and he's usually constructs films a little better than this, you know, and I I I know that this is I think this is one of the few, if not the only, I guess what you call straight on horror horror title in his in his, you know, credits here. I oh, don't that's know if a that good anything, question. I don't um, know if that had anything to do with maybe him not necessarily well, I don't know. He had, a, he had a hand in Pearl of Death, which we'll see later yeah. on this year, later on in '44, yeah. which you know has its horrific have its has its horrific uh, moments. But mm. I don't know. That's an interesting thing. He 
he wrote so many movies that I admire. I mean, I, I, yeah. I recently yeah. finally got to see his uh, the film he wrote, uh, Walk a Crooked Mile, from 1948, uh, which just turned out to be absolutely fantastic. But um, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, you're right. I mean, is this the kind of thing that you expect from the guy responsible for the Spider-Woman, you know, mm-hmm. just the year before this? Or, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes faces death or, you know, mm-hmm. really any of the stuff he's responsible for. I have a lot of respect for what he did with uh, uh, the Nick Carter stuff in uh, 1939. But at the same time, I am still convinced. I will I will remain convinced because it's very clear to me that he wrote a better movie than we see. I think it's probably, uh, I mean, no, I would, I would, I would think that was very possible. You know, I would, I would definitely believe that. I would love to see the original script for this film. You know, what was originally, yeah. what was originally done, because I would be, I would suspect that there, that, that it probably began as a much better story than it ends up being. And what we end up with here is a movie that I feel, I don't dislike it. I am anchored by it multiple times. Yeah. But I'm right. entertained enough by it to yes. for, that that it gets by. But it is one of those things where I find it to be. Well, I thought for years that uh, my my least favorite of the Universal Invisible Man films was always going to be uh, the Invisible Woman because it's just mm-hmm. it's just nothing but a comedy, and that always irritated me. And um, while some of the stuff in it's funny, most of it I don't find funny, and it just seems to be a short changing of the concept and what, you know, and what could be accomplished with not just the special effects, but with, you know, the, the idea of switching the genders, you know, we're not going to take it seriously. We're just going to turn it into a comedy. That's yeah, kind of, yeah. almost, almost by the act of switching genders made them just feel like, you know, they, they couldn't, they couldn't treat it seriously. Yeah. Right. You know, that, yeah. That only if we've got to make the woman in the main role was the, is the, they, we've got to just go with the comedy instead of making it, playing it straight, you know, True. kind of thing. So, but I got to say, I think this is probably in the final analysis, the, the least of them, in my opinion, because as much as I am not a fan of The Invisible Woman, at least it did what it set out to do. It wow, you're, you're like almost, yeah, you're almost, you're almost word for word saying what I was going to say about oh. the series, you know, saying the same thing. Say I was going to say that I would, I'd probably need to watch the two almost, you know, back to back again, maybe to know for sure. But my feeling was that this ended up being the worst, you know, the least, the weakest of these, of the series. And that, and because of exactly what you said, that the invisible woman, at least you're right, it does a better job of doing what it set out to do. Exactly. Well, and what's weird is how, okay, no secret. We, we talk about this all the time. We're using the uh, universal horrors book as our guide to go through these movies as we go. And we use it uh, in every episode to kind of, give us some juicy tidbits and some information about the films but here's how they here's how the the chapter on this particular movie starts in the universal horrors book the least ambitious but hardly the least entertaining of universal's universal's widely varying series the invisible man's revenge boasts a a direct no frills approach to its subject matter which is refreshing after the excesses of the invisible woman and invisible agent really Hmm. I, I no. find myself disagreeing with you in the first sentence. It's it is I mean, the least of the series to my mind. Yeah, and um, if anything, I think it suffers especially by following on the heels of a film that was so, so strong as 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 Individual Agent, Invisible Agent. I mean, you and I were big fans of that film. And, I like and, that and, film. It still has the crippling humor in it. Yeah, sure, sure. But yeah. 
I like the story a lot more, and I like what right. they what they do in in, in mm-hmm. within the confines of what they of the story they were telling in that movie. Yeah. But right. This is you know this sentence I I'll skip down just a little bit to the point where it says the Invisible Man's Revenge seems too small scale to be anything but a standard genre piece, but there are enough off kilter ingredients to keep it from being a strictly by the numbers programmer, and I would argue that the off kilter ingredients that they're referencing fall into two categories: the shit that shouldn't have been in the film, which is all the the idiotic humor, with especially the interminable dart sequence, and the off-kilter things that seem to be from an earlier draft of the script, which, mm. which <laughs> keeps... It, it, I'll say yeah. it's off-kilter because it really throws the, the thrust of the story off-balance terribly, and not, and not in a way that makes you feel like there was some, some plan involved to kind of keep you unaware of what direction things were going to go. I just think they changed directions and they were trying to paper over those, those problems as quickly as they could and kind of, to my mind, failing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, also, I don't think they they, they 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 come up with. Okay, once again, the way back from being made invisible turns out to be a blood transfusion, um, right? Which is all well and good, except that in this case, the the blood transfusion turns out to only last a day or so, and then you've got a mm-hmm. you've got to uh, inject uh, all of the blood from another human being into your body. Which does ask the question very obviously: Where does all of your blood go? Yes, and 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 also the other obvious question is: Where the hell did Griffin learn to do this? Uh, oh, that's that's not know. even the that's, exactly. He become he become uh, he becomes yeah. an expert in transfu- yeah. blood transfusions with no schooling, right. no no help from the person he murders, who's the only person right. who could have taught him, right. and. My best, my best and favorite part about this whole illogical, stupid thing is, you know, in the '40s we were starting to dope out the whole problem with blood types, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> shoving the blood of four or five different people into your body is a guaranteed way to kill yourself. <laughs> so, yeah, it it becomes this thing where. By the time we get to the self-transfusion sequence, and I have to tell you that while he was invisible during the first time he does this, where he's draining John Carradine's blood and putting it into his own body, I am thinking the two thoughts, well, that's great, where does his blood go? And then I'm also thinking, wait a minute, from the angle he's laying, how is he doing this? <laughs> I thought that too. I was, yeah. How is he? <laughs> how, I don't, because you've got to, you've got to draw, it, okay, forget it. <laughs> Any, uh, nevertheless, if we're gonna if, if we're if we're gonna concentrate on the stupid shit, we won't enjoy the good stuff. But at the same yeah. time, it is the stupid shit that keeps interfering with my ability to enjoy the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. <laughs> let's let's think about this for a second. Now, if our main character is going to be an unhinged, quick to anger, sociopathic murderer, although to be clear. We're introduced to him being a murderer. First of all, let's let's talk about yeah. this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Yeah. He, we see him. Uh, first of all, great opening sequence where we're introduced to our character cutting his way out of a out of a, a a box that has been unloaded from a ship. I mean, anything that begins on a foggy dock, you you know, is a great way to start a film. <laughs> you know, it's just like one of the best ways <laughs> to start any like any any old film. It's just the first thing you do is just a foggy shipping dock. You know, it's just yeah. Yep. Yep. 
I agree. I agree. Well, we he so he he's gotten to London. He cuts his way through the word London. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> comes out of there looking all cool. Uh, goes buys himself some new clothes. Uh, we get the first indication that uh, he's quick to anger and a bit of a, a bit of a loon when he reacts over the top to uh, an innocent question by the guy selling him the clothes, and then because. Uh, who doesn't carry around newspaper articles about their own murderous rampages? Their own murder, yeah. He leaves behind his clothes, and inside, what right. does the guy who sold him the clothes, uh, his new clothes, find? But a newspaper article from South Africa detailing the fact that he broke out of a nut house and murdered two people. And this is going to be an incredibly huge plot point that plays out later on. Oh, except that it doesn't. I know. <laughs> I know. If this is the guy, if this guy is being reported in newspapers as being a murderer, guess what? Anybody who wants him out of the way has a get him out of the way easy card. Yeah. <laughs> it's called the police. Yeah. <laughs> he's gone. He's done. He ain't hurting nobody because he's behind bars. So, uh, Okay, so that's all right. All right, I normally I would I would just I would describe what we're doing right now as finding flaws within the story that we enjoy. But to be honest, the more I think about all of the flaws in this thing, the more it just starts to unravel completely. Yeah. It is so yeah. obvious that they rethought this thing in the middle of the production that all of those those loose ends, those things that are just hanging there, like obvious threads that you just kind of got to eventually pull on are unnerving and irritating and just they 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 bother me man <laughs> they really we, still bother me. we still haven't even gotten to all of them which is the sad oh, thing no but, no, you know, no. Say, but here's what i thought you know and you probably had the same thought <clears throat> when i see this you know when i see this you know besides the fact of why the hell is he carrying around this newspaper article with him you know this incriminating newspaper article but the, as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, over the course of the film, we're going to, he's going to be somehow exonerated for this, you know, because right. you're expecting the character to end up being in some way a sympathetic character. And you're going to figure, okay, we're going to find out that this is not what really happened. That he's not really a murderer, you know, but even if we did find out, I mean, the fact that it just never comes up again is the, is the mad maddening thing, you know, that it never really, you know, you think at some point the, the Alan Curtis's character, you know, the, the journalist, you know, you figure at some point, right he's going to really get a nose for this story or kind of connect the dots, you know, and, and which is obviously what was intended in the original yeah. story. Yeah. Who's going to dig into someone's yeah. background far enough to discover mm -hmm. something reported on the front page of a fucking newspaper, a yeah. journalist. And yet the character is almost completely neutered in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just, <laughs> it, okay. So let's, Let's let's discuss something else. Mm -hmm. This movie so clearly, and this, once again, this is I, I, this this is clear in the opening scene where he comes in and confronts the two people that, to his mind, left him behind, left him for dead, took all his money, were the whole nine yards, right? Mm -hmm. It's been five years, and he yeah. had amnesia for years because of a whack on the head. Yeah, but during those entire five years. He still had a wallet with that freaking piece of paper in it, <laughs> delineating exactly what his name is. 
really? He did? Then how did he not know who he was? Mm-hmm. How did someone mm-hmm. not, you know, a, a doctor, a nurse, take that piece of paper, do some research, and say, well, I think this is who you are, sir. But no one did? No one at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> then, during the sequence yeah. where, you know, just before he's drugged, mm-hmm. we see him looking at the painting of the Lord and Lady's daughter, played by Evelyn Ankers, and basically just saying that, you know, she's his. You know, he's yeah. he's yeah. He, he, he's laying claim to her. Well, yeah. how old is this character supposed to be? Uh-huh. Yep, yep. When we would he have him. ever seen no, her? Yeah, right. You, we, so you, you thought about this too, huh? Oh, you get to a big problem with, uh, well, it's a big problem with poor Evelyn Anchors just uh, being so wasted in this film uh, as, as, she is, as she is frequently. Um, but we'll get that in a minute. But yes, the whole whole storyline of, uh, I feel like that's totally messed up. The storyline between Griffith and his obsession for Julie yep. just has no resonance. And that didn't really have an, it doesn't even really make sense. You know, there's not even okay. There's clearly there's clearly you introduce something like that. It's there's going to be a payoff later in mm-hmm. the story. But as with so mm-hmm. many things in this poorly sequenced thing, there is no payoff. There's nothing no. there during this yeah. first scene. We learn and in the film, like I say, this op- this scene between the three of them uh, at the beginning, right before he's drugged, mm-hmm. pa- you know, packs so much information in there that the movie does not pay off on because they swerve away from the implications of everything in this sequence. When uh, they mentioned the, the, the photograph of the daughter played by Evelyn anchors that, and, and, and her mother, the Gail Sondergaard character says, Oh yes, we, that, that photograph that we lost while we were on safari and there in the jungle. And he says, Oh, it wasn't lost. I have it. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not being said outright, but it's very clear. He stole it. Yeah. He took yeah. the photograph of this young girl from her parents and kept it for himself. He right. he he has it and he still has it. So once again, how do you still have this photograph of this woman or girl, mm-hmm. this note with your freaking name on it and spend 5 years not knowing who the hell you are? W- w- huh? <laughs> yeah and okay so she and her you know this character of julie that evelyn anchors plays is is so undermined by the scenes that that character should have had that she never gets you know? Oh, i know like there should have been something some scene with her and and griffin you know with with some scene between them that just to just to at least if nothing else add a little bit more resonance to the the kind of fact that he's obsessed with her or that he wants to ultimately claim her usually in most of these films that has more of a meaning but more weight but it, it's almost kind of just we never really think about it because there's nothing there's nothing between them there's no you know right no, no history no scene between them no recognition of any kind uh, of her for him or awareness of her for him and then also we have a scene where she's upset because her mother, Gail Sondergaard, you know, has gone, been gone crazy, has, has been made insane by this encounter she had with the Invisible Man. That's that's a scene. We needed a scene in that room between her and Gail Sondergaard. You know, we needed those scenes rather than just have her sitting there talking about them. Right. And we needed, there needed to at some point be a scene between crazy man Robert Griffin and the Evelyn Anchors character where yeah. she feels threatened by him even right. but but while he's trying to not be threatening but he can't help himself. 
Yeah. I mean, she's never even put in any danger, which is usually a no. staple of, I mean, that's usually something you do. That's usually something you do towards the climax of the film to amp up the suspense of some kind. But yeah, poor Evelyn Anchors, man. You know, it's like we talked about before. By the time we're done with this series, she will be the actress that, you know, the actor that will have appeared more than any other, really, in our series, except for the obvious Sherlock, you know. Well, that and some some of the character actors in Basil Rathbone and... and uh, right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you're right. It was already her ninth. I counted it up, and this is, the, this is already her ninth appearance in our series, but really only... But so many of those appearances, are, you know, some of them have been great, but so many of them are just been her as kind of almost like a placeholder in the film, you know. We just need an attractive female romantic interest, and and so many of them end up being just underusing her so badly. To the yeah, to the point where <sighs> my memories of this film were so dim that when we came when I came came time to rewatch it, I sat down and I thought, man, I have no memories of her in this movie. And just as the credits started, I thought that probably means that she is completely wasted. And yep, that's what turned out to be true. Right. Right. Well, th- th- let's let's talk about another another aspect of this. So, what we're what we're seeing here is the ongoing effects of this film being altered and another one of the things where you can see obvious problems with the editing where they're they're chopping things out of it, probably not just huge things, but things that, you know, led from one thing to another. It's about 19 minutes into the movie when we get introduced to John Carradine's, I guess, maybe we call him a mad doctor. He's not He's not really, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, to me, okay, I'll go and say right out. To me, this is the best aspect of the film is John Carradine and the character. I think he's he's certainly entertaining. I think he's very entertaining. He's very good, and I think there's interesting things they do that you kind of like go against your expectations of his of what you think his character is going to be. That I think now again, how much of it is a result of of again just kind of fractured storytelling? I don't know, but there's odd sort of things about like what you say that statement there. You know, he's not really, we think he's going to be a, a mad doctor, especially when he does that great, I love it, when we first see him and he first, you know, opens the door to Griffin and Griffin stumbles upon his cottage, you know, his little, his little quaint yeah. little mad scientist cottage here, you know, but he stumbles <laughs> upon it. And I love that, that, uh, you know, uh, immediately John Carradine's like, oh, you're, you're fit, aren't you? And then he, uh, and then he says a minute, he reveals a minute later, he's on the, he's a fugitive. He's like, oh, a fugitive. And I'm just like, the way his, the way his face is lighting up and you just see, he's like, oh, I've got a, got a guy that's on the run and he's in great shape, you know, just what I need for my experiments. Um, and <laughs> this, is, point, this is, pl- this is plot point number two in your standard mad scientist film. And we're racing along here. I'm on screen for two minutes. Hold on. <laughs> and you, you, and that's where you're already beginning to think he's going to be the classic mad scientist, but he kind of ended up finding out that, that he's, he's really more of a, a kooky genius than he is actually mad yeah but i will say this i think that this is another spot where we can see the broad outlines and actually some detail work of what was probably there in the original mm-hmm. screenplay from Milhauser. i think here you can see and i'll, I'll draw i'll draw these out for us um when we are introduced to the john Carradine character we're watching robert griffin at at night obviously trying to, to stay ahead of of pursuit of some type. Mm-hmm. Although at this point, it's a little foggy as to why he would be being pursued. He's already had the scenes where he gets fished out of the, the river by uh, the Shoemender character and tells his tale of woe to this guy. And uh, we start getting the, the broad outlines of, of fear within my heart that we're going to have a comedic character. Oh God, save us. No, we are. And then... The movie cuts to us 
seeing Griffin at night kind of make his way to this um, this mad scientist, I want to say mad scientist lair, but it is, you know, just a sweet cottage of an old, old uh, kooky guy. And uh, it seems it shows here when the, in the dialogue between them with Griffin saying, saying to Carradine's character, there's a constable after me. And he, Mm -hmm. and he briefly outlines that he briefly outlines that he's being, you know, that he's, that the local gentry have set, uh, the police after him for some reason or another. Well, okay, mm-hmm. we're only giving this in dialogue. We're not being shown any of this. So I suspect in the original screenplay, our evil, remember in the original screenplay, the Lord and Lady would have been evil. <laughs> they would have right. been yeah. cunning and nasty, set about making making sure that the local cops were running Robert Griffin out of the place. They toss him in the river in the original screenplay, he survives because he gets fished out, and mm-hmm. then they're they're just trying to run him off. This there's a constable after me line seems to if you watch John Carradine, this seems to tell Carradine's character a bit of information more than just that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why once he's introduced the whole idea of him being able to create invisible creatures by showing him the invisible parrot and introducing him to his invisible dog Brutus. He goes out of his way, and this is where you can see what I like about uh, the the Millhauser screenplay. He draws a direct comparison between Brutus the dog and Griffin, talking mm-hmm. about uh, how he kind of rescued him and used him in his experiment, and now he's a he's a happy he's a happy dog and he's protected. And he says, "A lone mongrel had no chance when the well-bred curs of the gentry came at him in pairs." Yeah. Which, which leads to which leads tells to me which which tells yeah. me at that point that in the original script, the mad scientist character knew what was going on with Griffin and was using this information to get him to go along with his plan to use him yeah. as a human guinea pig. Well, there's well, there's there's one point where he even says a line like about a neurotic with a persecution complex, you know, which sounds yep. like he's pretty much just nails what Griffin is. Uh-huh. Uh, but, and also what you just said there just led to really Griffin's, I mean, you know, I think the best line, the character of Griffin has in the whole film where he says they all hunt in couples, the gentry. Uh-huh. I thought that was pretty good. I thought that's a great line. But in this film, in the way we now have it, as we watch this film, that is not true. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I say, this is one of the last scenes in the movie where we can see the broad outline of what I think the original story was, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they they chopped it and they softened it and they did as much as they could to try to present um, the 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 Lord character as uh, sympathetic as they could, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because in this film. There is not the slightest bit of indication that he is anywhere near having done anything untoward, anything cruel or vicious or even selfish, except going along with that weird, that weird suggestion from his wife um, that they put him out of the house and keep that note, which never plays into the film again. So (laughs) it's, it's, it's very strange. But yeah. and then it's soon after this that uh, you know they, he of course submits to becoming an invisible man because he he's convinced probably correctly that this would be a great way to get his vengeance. 
And then we get one last scene with Gail Sondergaard being driven mad by uh, being confronted by the Invisible Man in her husband's, as far as we could tell, her husband's bedroom. And then ex- exit the movie, never to be seen again. One one wonders why. One 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 does wonder if Sondergaard maybe didn't go along with, the, didn't like the idea of softening the characters, or maybe they decided that keeping any scenes with that character in it, maybe they filmed them. You know, like the like you're talking about the scene between the daughter and the mother, and maybe yeah. they filmed this stuff and they just went, nope, nope, got to spend more time with the darts. Yeah. But or uh, again, again, my thinking is wondering if just something schedule wise just suddenly screwed up with something she was also supposed to do. You know, some other film she had commitments to doing or something that they she just had to suddenly get out. You know, leave the set. Uh, you know, and then go elsewhere. I also wondered about that too. I just you know, I don't, don't know. know. It's very very strange. Well, the um, the next the next scene that really kind of I mean I, as much as I hate the sequences in the running nag the the uh, the pub where the the dart scenes mm-hmm. go down there is still an indication uh, amongst the conversation in the uh, the guys there in the pub talking to each other we learn that the invisible man has been noticed around the town because they they make jokes about a headless corpse yeah and so once again we're seeing this this movie there were probably sequences that were planning to be in the film in a different form that would have had people, you know, seeing him lurking around, uh, lurking around the town, uh, and, uh, you know, causing a scare inadvertently probably. And therefore putting people in mind of this kind of stuff. But here it's reduced to just these, these couple of lines of dialogue where it really doesn't play that heavily at all into pushing the film along other than just adding a little bit of color here before we spend 10 minutes watching a comedic dark game. Right, and I would have much rather seen those other. <laughs> I would have much rather seen those other sequences. <laughs> I'd take those over the dark, you know, the stuff with Henry with uh, Leon Errol. I would, I would take those other sequences over that any day. Oh yeah, man, no, no joke. I mean, I know. Maybe, maybe let me address the the audience listening to our to our mm. our, our meager show here to to stress. I don't mean to become so negative about this film. But as I think about the film, after a couple of viewings of it here in the last week, all that comes to mind is my my anger and frustration at the things that are so messed up about it. it there are yeah. so many things that just don't work in this movie, and it really I find it very frustrating. I did not expect to be in that position, but here I am. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's not an effective or particularly well done movie in the final analysis, and I think it's because of mid-production meddling uh it seems to me that there was a much better movie that they were planning to make and what we get is is kind of a it's kind of a pale pale mess it doesn't it doesn't very well work even when Mm -hmm. there are things i enjoy about it yeah yeah again i you know i go back to I, i i did enjoy just the fact that john carradine's character ends up being more sympathetic and actually not a bad guy you know it's not what i was expecting you know i just i was expecting him to first when you first realize he's kind of edging the griffith character toward being his human experiment you know you you're sort of beginning at first to think like he's going to be one of these guys who's you know scientists who's wanting to get revenge on the world and revenge on the scientific community for shunning him or making fun of him and you realize he just you know he really actually his ultimate goal is just to be accepted as a great scientist not to like create a race of superman or something like that <laughs> and uh or and to I have conquer to give, the world yeah exactly and i have to give a uh, i have to give it i have to give the movie props uh, even though it's silly but you know at least they do try and drop some actual science on the explanation you know the uh what is a 
for how the invisibility <laughs> works. Uh, yeah. What is it? Uh, Carradine, I think he says, a geometric expression involving four dimensions. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, sure, Doc, whatever you whatever you say. Yeah, there, that, uh, that, that's along that's along the lines of. And we'll, yeah. fill, we'll fill in dialogue later that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So it's like, hey, at least they tried, you know. But <laughs> uh, yeah, Well, true, true. I mean, and to be honest, in the final analysis, this is a film that was not aimed at a, shall we say, completely adult audience by the time yeah. they were done. By the time they were done sanding down every rough edge and then crippling anything that might be any other kind of edge. Um, so, yeah, you know what a 12 year old is going to give a crap about something like that. I mean, you just might yeah. as well just say, do you understand algebra? And that would have been enough <laughs> slide right on by. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's take a look at uh, a kind of, well, this is a really good one. This is, this is a good uh, analysis of the film. Well, a plot synopsis, I should say, I don't know if what we're doing would be called, uh, an analysis rather than a murder of this film. <laughs> but uh, from the 40s Universal Monsters a Critical Commentary book, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it to kind of get us through a, a synopsis, okay? Uh-huh. I suppose you think I'm mad, don't you? No, no. Hi, Brutus. I'm not a crank, you know, not a quack. Look at my degrees there on the wall. Aberdeen. Berlin. Vienna, come in, Brutus, come in. Oh. Eddie, I got us chain you up to be sure. Come oh, on, I might have been a fashionable physician. Yes, with my brawn and my titled patience. But there was something bigger. You want it? Speak for it. That's the boy. Nicely now. Don't snatch. In the name of... What's the matter? Can't I feed my dog? Or don't you think there is a dog? I... Why, yes, of course, only... Only, only you doubt it, huh? Very well, put out your hand and feel it. Quiet, Brutus. There is a dog. A huge one. I could feel it. Of course, of course. Especially trained as my bodyguard. He'd probably kill anyone that raised a hand to me. But the dog's invisible. That's impossible. In this house, you've got to believe what you can't see. Come on, boy. The Invisible Man's Revenge, 1944. Robert Griffin arrives in England from Cape Town after escaping from a mental hospital there and killing three orderlies. Griffin just recently regained... I thought it was two orderlies. Never the Well, okay. Think of that. I thought it was two orderlies and a nurse. Ah, well, you know, three bodies. They do later on say that he killed three people, so yes. Uh, Griffin just recently regained his memory after five years of amnesia and goes to seek his former business partners, Sir Jasper Herrick and his wife Irene. They are shocked to see Griffin when he arrives at their Shortlands estate, having believed him dead after suffering a head injury during their search for diamonds in Africa. Griffin doesn't buy that and insists on his share of the diamond mine that they discovered. When told that most of the profits have been lost through bad investments, Griffin demands that the Henricks sign over, the Shortland, sign over Shortlands to him. Griffin is also interested in daughter Julie Her- Herrick, who is engaged to Mark Foster, a reporter. 
When Griffin passes out after having a drink, Sir Jasper, realizing that their former friend is now a, da a dangerous paranoid, carries him out of the house, but only after Irene steals their original agreement about the mine from Griffin's pocket. Griffin is taken in by the penniless cobbler, Herbert Higgins, who then tries to blackmail the Herricks, but the scheme backfires and Sir Jasper's friend, Chief Constable Sir Frederick Travers, runs Griffin out of the district. Wandering about in the rain, Griffin is given shelter by Dr. Drury, an eccentric scientist who has successfully experimented in turning animals, including his dog Brutus, invisible. Now see, there's the perfect word for Dr. Drury, the John Car Carradine character, eccentric. Eccentric, yep, yep. He hid he, he that. Yes, he very much is that. <laughs> well, Griffin volunteers to be a human subject, and the doctor's drug does indeed render him invisible. Using Higgins' cottage as his base of operations, Griffin proceeds to terrify and harass Sir Jasper and Irene. Soon, stories of an invisible man wandering around the countryside attract Mark Forrest's interest. Well, you know, he is a journalist, so there. Yeah. In the interim, knowing he can never, he, he can never woo Julie in his current state, yeah, you know, invisible and all, mm -hmm. uh, Griffin returns to Dr. Drury and asks to be made visible. Although Drury has returned his dog to a state of visibility at just the moment that <laughs> our invisible man comes back to this to see the doctor, that's what he's doing is making the dog visible so that it's very clear, oh yeah, we can do this. Uh, <laughs> uh, the doctor tells Griffin that his having the condition reversed would require the complete draining of another person's blood, and this Drury refuses to do. This is where we learn Drury wasn't really a mad scientist. He's not willing to kill people. He will murder dogs to bring his own dog's visibility back, but he won't kill humans. <laughs> Griffin overpowers Drury and uses the lab equipment to transfuse the doctor's blood to himself. That's a sentence doing a lot of work there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Becoming visible again, he sets the cottage on fire, but Brutus escapes the conflagration. Let's pause right there for just a second. To, to demonstrate very clearly that this movie was showing, showing, showing that Griffin is a madman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, yes, exactly. He murders the doctor. I mean, they even have that, that, yeah. that poorly voice, poorly voice over line uh, uh, when he, when he kills the doctor, I guess yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'll have to use your blood. And it's like, you know, this is when we find out that he's somehow, learned how to perform a blood transfusion on yourself, something yeah. I wouldn't want to try. No, no. I'll leave that to the experts, I think. <laughs> well, uh, Griffin, now visible, of course, returns to Shortlands and insists that Sir Jasper pass him off as his friend, Martin Field. So he takes on this fake name, Martin Field. When, after a short while, Griffin starts to become invisible again, he lures Foster down to the wine cellar, knocks him unconscious, and starts to transfuse his blood. Partway through the process, though, Sir Jasper and Sir Frederick break down the door. Brutus gets into the house before they do, however, and kills his master's murderer, saving Foster. Now that is a good wrap-up of the story and papers over all of the things we've been complaining about pretty effectively. Yep. This would be, I think, possibly, the most interesting of the Invisible Man sequels if they had filmed what I think they originally intended. Yeah, I think it could be. I think that I, I agree. I think there could have been a lot of interesting ideas there to be, you know, to work with. The Okay, let's put it this way. 
going through all the stuff that this book that I'm reading from uh, draws out, which is uh, the different announcements made at different times before the film went into production about casting and the direction of the story and things of that nature, points out that uh, early on, uh, there was uh, they were they were listing off the people who were going to star on it. And this is before the movie goes into production, saying that the that it would star John Hall with Alan Curtis and Evelyn Anchors pro- providing the love interest, and that quote Gail Sondergaard and Edgar Barry are set for more sinister roles. Now it didn't turn out to be Edgar Barry; he got replaced. Yeah. But saying set for more sinister roles does, of course put you in mind of exactly what I'm talking about, which is, I think those characters are supposed to be very villainous, and then they they wussed out. They yeah. softened yeah. them. So by the time uh, Lester Matthews is replacing Edgar Berry, uh, Gail Sondergaard, you know, they just soften her down and then write her out of the film as quickly as possible. There we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this book points out the thing that I was talking about earlier, which is that Griffith's backstory, Griffith's backstory is is kind of confusing and packed with loose ends. The whole thing, it's like, okay, so how did he survive his injury? Because we don't get a whole lot of details about that. He's nursed his way back home. Took him five years. Uh, Did he become a psychotic before or after regaining his memory? Yeah. Uh, And and they point out what I was talking about earlier. It's like he had his own name and the Henrix name on a piece of paper in his pocket for five years. How could he not know who he was? Um, Mm -hmm. I... To, and this is just me guessing at this point. I bet you that the reason it took him five years to get here to confront them was it was taking him five years to get here. In other words, he was left so des- he was he was sick for a long time in the original story. He's sick for a long time. He's in recovery for a long time, and then mm-hmm. he's he's flat ass broke in a foreign land. Has to find a way to earn enough money to get his to get to work his way back to London. In other words, that's another way, another reason written into the story in its original version, at least as far as I can tell, for him to yeah. be incredibly angry about what yeah. happened to him. Yeah, right. But they soften it with this whole amnesia thing, which is kind of silly, but it's just another piece of silliness piled on to silliness as we go through this thing. So I, I keep thinking to myself, man, there was a really good movie in there. And yeah. what we get is so confused and muddled that it's mm-hmm. the script can't make up its mind about whether the the, the Lord and Lady are innocent victims or scumbags. Yeah. And yeah. no, I think you're right. I think it's the heart of it. They don't know. They ultimately just lost track of what they wanted to do with the characters, and they don't understand from scene to scene what they're trying to do with these characters or how they right. want the audience to feel about them. It's it's really really irritating. I did, this now joins the list of uh, universal horror films from this period that I wish we could see the rest of, or we could see the uh, the original version of. Uh, it does appear, I, in other words, I wonder if they shot the movie and then softened it afterwards, or if they 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 softened it during production, because yeah. some of the some of the the spicier, spikier stuff is still here. It's still in evidence, um, and while you know. We all we all would love to see the you know like the the, the bear wrestling scene from the Wolfman or the yeah. uh, all the all the talking Frankenstein monster sequences from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman or all the stuff that got 
cut out of a film we'll see later in this run of films the the spider woman strikes back there's just there's like obviously there's like almost a reel cut out of that damn thing making it just a mess the <laughs> the this this film here becomes another one where man i would really love to see the original screenplay if it were ever possible if it were ever properly filmed i would love I'll to be able to see that, that but you know yeah. we're not ever we're never going to see that so yeah, you know, you figure it's out there. I mean, you know, but I guess as far as I know, I mean, it, yeah, it would been great if they had released it in any of those script series. A lot of that Universal stuff has come out, but, you know, I don't know if there's even enough interest in this film, this particular, you know, yeah. for them to put something like that out. But I sure would love to see it, for sure, definitely. Oh, I agree. I agree. I, I, I don't think that there's at all enough interest in this particular film, this kind of... <laughs> this damp squib of the end of the series. I just don't, I don't think that enough people would, would give enough, would give a damn. I mean, I don't know what the sales figures are for like that, that wonderful uh, scripts from the Crypt series that Tom Weaver has gotten gotten back up and running. Yeah. But I mean, granted, I mean, he did just put out the most recent release of that is uh, one of the mummy movies we haven't covered yet, which, uh, which, which makes me, you know, don't get me wrong, makes me very happy, but there is a part of me that would love to see the sales figures to find out just how many copies of, you know, the Mummy's Ghost scripts mm-hmm. from the Crypt Collection number 15 are actually going to get sold. I would, I would yeah. just, I would really <laughs> be curious to know because there's a part of me that's pretty sure that it ain't a lot. Um, you know, I, I, let's, let's, let's say I don't think that number climbs into the thousands. Maybe it does. <laughs> Maybe it's in the thousands. I could be wrong. I want it. I I really I do. I really really want it. Speaking of John Kerry I mean, and hey, the Mummy movie, so you know. Hey, I may I may listen. I I might even be willing to get that myself before we do that film. You know, I would. It would be nice to have that to check out. You know, before we cover it. So it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, because yeah. I'm a weirdo. But like I say, <laughs> who? How many copies are they gonna sell? Nevertheless, Um, and the Invisible Man's Revenge, a a deep dive into the original screenplay and comparing it to the finished product. Hey, you get my dollars. I Mm -hmm. don't know how many other people's dollars you would get, but me, I would be sitting there going, ah, ha, 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 see, and this. I thought about Mm -hmm. this, too, but uh, I'm I'm a very strange person. Well, you get it and you find out that it's exactly the way it was filmed. And then you're just like, okay, it was a lousy script. I can, I can accept that. You know. <laughs> okay, so they crippled the script before they filmed it. What a joke. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's talk about different aspects of the movie. Let's let's try to concentrate on the positive. What are the, what are the things that you enjoy about this one? Well, even though, I mean, I, mean, I, I feel like, you know, again, John Fulton's work is always fun. He does a great job. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's so underrated in a lot of ways or just, you know, he is, he, he the, the stuff he did, did in Universal's films are fantastic. And these invisible men, the stuff he does here, I mean, there's, you know, especially for audiences at that time, I'm sure that was a big part of the draw, you know, to see what kind of movie magic are we going to get. And as always, there's a, uh, there's some clever things that he does, some new ideas that he plays around with. What's un- what's unusual is that the worst effect in the whole film is one I wouldn't have thought of been that hard to pull off. And that's the falling statue that, uh, that when the, when the invisible man tries to push the statue off onto uh, Mark Foster and the, uh, and uh, uh, Halliwell Hobbs, you know, and it, it hits the floor between them. And when it breaks into all these shatters, all these pieces, the pieces are superimposed over them. You know, I mean, it's obviously the two films, like the, the falling oh. statue breaking okay. was, you know what I'm talking about? And where it's like, now yeah, I know, it, yeah, now I know what you're talking about. I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about that as an effect, but yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, because it was, uh, yeah, it's a separate bit of film. And, but because of the way it breaks, you know, there's these pieces of plaster that are overlaying the, the two actors. And that seemed to me an especially un weirdly clumsy effect, considering that I don't think it would have been too hard to have pulled that off realistically and not shown it that way. And so I thought that was really odd that it ended up being, you know, in a film where, where so many of the effects are so cleverly, you know, thought out, you know, that that one was like, okay, that's really strange. That turned out so badly. But, but on the whole, I do, uh, you know, I always like his work. Um, again, I think Carradine is good. I like just the kind of unexpected, the way the character doesn't end up being the way you think he's going to, you know, what you think he's going to be. Um, and, uh, you know, you can always enjoy some of the, the, you know, the look of the film, the sets and stuff. But, uh, you know, and I, I do, I, one thing I did enjoy, I had in my notes here that just kind of gave me a, I thought was a neat, probably, I'm sure not intentional on the part of the director, or maybe it was, I don't know. Maybe they were thinking that this would be kind of a nod to audiences at the time, something they would pick up on. But in the scene where our comic relief, you know, our Herbert Higgins character brings his lawyer friend. Um, yeah. Uh, Feeney, the lawyer that he thinks is going to, you know, strong arm yes. uh, Lord Herrick into giving him, you know, what into the into king, you know, copying to the blackmail. Um, well, the Feeney, uh, the lawyer, is played by Ian Wolfe, and uh, Ian Wolfe, oh, yeah, had, yeah, and so Ian Wolfe is very familiar to us from many films and in which he played tons of butlers, and we also have, of course, Halliwell Hobbs playing a butler, Cleghorn, and uh, I there's a great, great scene where they just happen to both be in the same frame. You know, Ian Wolfe is sitting in his chair and, and, and uh, Halliwell Hobbs comes to stand beside him. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking, and there, ladies and gentlemen, in that frame is every butler from the 40s. <laughs> it's, like those two, <laughs> it's like those those two guys between them. If you put their credits together, it's over 500 credits and probably oh, wow. a third of those and probably a third of those for both of them are butlers. But I was just sitting there and I almost wondered, you know, even though it was probably accidental, I'm also sitting there thinking that audiences at that time would be like, oh, it's the two butlers we've seen in every film. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not you're not wrong. I mean, we've already seen uh, we, we, we've seen Ian Wolfe in so many movies already in just this yeah. series. I mean, he's the guy. OK, let's let, let's 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 see here. He was the uh, he was an antiques dealer in Sherlock Holmes in Washington. He right. was he was a butler in yes. the Scarlet Claw. Yes. Uh, and he's going to pop up again as an art dealer in Pearl of Death. Uh, <laughs> He played a clerk and an office manager and witness for the prosecution in 1957. So even, you know, 15 years after this film, he's still playing, you know, you know, support supporting roles. But in, you know, you know, larger films, he went on to play uh, lots of characters on episodic television of a similar type. And mm. my God, man, he even had a small reoccurring role in WK, WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, oh my God! <laughs> he was playing a butler to Lillian Carlson, to the to the owner, you know, the the owner of the yeah. station, playing a butler mm -hmm. to her in the eighties on WKRP. I shit you not. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and this is a guy. I mean, I think let's. He he always with that bald head of his. He always he was always playing characters that were that that were older than he actually was. I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, in in uh, Mad Love in 1935, he plays Colin Clive's stepfather, but he was only four years older than Clive. But you know, he just he just looked older. So what the hell? Yeah, he did. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, I, I, his career was so incredibly long. His last film credit was Dick Tracy in 1990. Mm, mm. I know. I mean, what, 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 what can you say? That's, 
mean, that, that, that is a career, man. <laughs> that is a career, man. That's just, that's amazing. Of course, Halliwell Hobbs, you know, was so awesome in the uh, uh, the Sherlock Holmes. Uh, uh, which one is the one that's uh, set uh, with the chess, the the big chess game that they used? To, oh, oh, Faces the, uh, Death. Faces Death. Yes, yes. Faces Death. Yes, that. Uh, yeah, he was great in that. But again, you know. Uh, another great, great cinematic, you know, butler and probably also played art dealers and played clerks and played, you know, just <laughs> those two guys, man. That was just, you know, they were just there. They had the faces and the balding heads you needed for those roles. Man, you know? <laughs> the balding heads. <laughs> Give me the a balding. All, the all important balding, head. balding heads, of course. <laughs> My God. You're not, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Oh God! Uh, what was hey, so funny? what did you make? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what was funny to me is that uh, this was this was a couple of years ago, but I remember it well because it haunted me for like a year until I was able to figure it out. This is before uh, I could figure out a way to do a, a, a really smart search for uh, different old character actors from from the days of the black and white films, my lad. Mm-hmm. But uh, right. I spotted Hallowell Hobbs in a uh, uh, a uh, Charlie Chan movie. Oh and, wow! Really? And, and and he he had a, he had a, he was like a, he has a you know several scenes in the film. But when I was watching it, I kept thinking, man, where do I know this guy from? There's something. There was something that was just haunting me about him, about his face. And it took me forever to, to figure it out. And what it was is I was rewatching Captain Blood and realized that he had a very small role in Captain Blood, and it just had imprinted on my brain. And as soon as oh, I wow. saw him on screen, I was like, that's that guy. <laughs> There he is. And those movies were made, I think, in like the same year, 1935. And so, I know, I know. And it's like, there's such a weird little thing, but, you know, movie, you know, old movie fans are going to run across these things every now and then where some character actor gets lodged in your brain and you just can't remember exactly what it is that's making you think about that character actor. What is it about? What did I see him in? It's driving me crazy. And then you, you know, if you're lucky, you finally figure it out or you carve that piece of your brain out and throw it in the trash. I don't know. (laughs) So listen, what did you, so, so what's your take on that? How did you feel about the whole, that our true hero is Brutus? Just the I was kind of cool with that because yeah. Death uh, by Dog is always good. Death by Dog is fun. I don't mind Death by Dog. Brutus is a beautiful dog, and he, he seemed he seemed to be very much uh, ready to murder anyone that messed with his master, which you know yeah. makes sense. I, I like mean, we it. get even we, we even get it we even get it foreshadowed. I mean, John Carradine, you know, Doctor Drury even says at yep. one point about him, he says he'll probably kill anyone who raises a hand against me. Well, so. what what did you think about what Brutus's Brutus the dog's real name was? Uh huh. Yeah, and uh, and how it related directly to a line in the film. Did you go? Did you go uh, there? Yes, exactly. the The dog's real name was Gray Shadow, folks. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 tell them tell them about the line. Tell them. Tell them. This is yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So when they're discussing the you know the sad, tragic you know and well deserved fate of of uh, of Griffin, there you know they're saying that he was fighting shadows. Well, yes, he was. He was fighting in fighting fact Gray Shadow. Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's you know not not to not to weave our way back into you know taking shots directly at the very large forehead and cranium in general of this film, but here's another shot is like I I'm even I think that even if I like this film more than I do, the mm-hmm. way they wrap this thing up, the dialogue all there at the mm-hmm. end, judgment Thank passed you. on him by a higher power. It's like ah, oh come it's, on it's, people, uh, really yeah, it's like no, it wasn't a higher power. It was a dog, and he ripped his face off. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, and and no, I agree. I thought that yeah, that made me roll my eyes. And then at the last where we have the the characters who should be, you know, which is Julie and 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 Mark Foster, you know, and the the, the good good guys who survived and right. are all setting out the end, and they're supposed to be. They're the ones who are supposed to say the thing that that sheds the most light on on what we've just watched, and you know they talk about they they refer to Doctor Drury as that old crank Doctor Drury. It's like, well, sorry, but he wasn't a crank. He wasn't. He actually he actually did what he said he was going to do. I mean, he invented invisibility. You know, he was. He, I mean, yeah, <laughs> he he cracked the code on something, and you know yeah. that should be completely impossible. Yeah. And so, yeah. So and then they both then that one of them refers to him and. Uh, to Dr. Drury and Griffin is just a couple of lunatics. It's like, well, that's not very fair to Dr. Drury. I mean, Drury was actually a, I know. a pretty likable guy. And he actually, I mean, yeah, he was pretty clever too. I love his whole ploy with the phone that would have worked if the dumbass yeah. cops hadn't screwed it, screwed it up. You know, the police. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> that, that, that was another, oh. see, that's another one of those. I'm glad you brought that, that up because nonsense. that's another that one of those. That was nonsensical, yeah. Well, what, what I love is that that, that whole ploy with the phone yeah. is very clever. It is. And it is another one of those things that made me feel like that's like, like that's that feels like a hangover from the original script idea yeah. where you have an actual clever person who comes up with a way to get him, try to get himself out of this terrible situation he's in. And it, it doesn't end up working, but it at least shows you the, the mind of a clever person trying to come up with a way out. Yeah. And it's just, to me, it will always be this frustrating mess of a film that I, as, as much as we, and we'll get into critics corner here eventually, I'm sure. Um, one of the things that you see the contemporary reviews of this film, dismissing it for the most part, or, you know, damning it with faint praise at best. This is one of the first times that I really am going to stand here in solidarity with some of the people pointing their fingers at it and, and kind of sneering. It, it's not, it's not as good as it could slash should have been, and I don't. I'm not. I don't enjoy watching it very much. There are things in it I do enjoy. There, there are there are a couple of scenes that I enjoy, but the most entertainment value I get out of rewatching this film is looking for all the little clues about what it could, what have, it could been. have been. Yeah, right. Good point. Good point. Let me ask you this: Do you do you think? Do you think you would enjoy it a little more if you were not having to think about it in terms of doing a podcast on it? If you had not been picking it apart that minutely, do you think you would? I'm not saying you necessarily come away thinking it's a good film, but do you think it would have been a little bit more of a just enjoyable kind of time time filler, like, you know, in just the way that Universal Films from that time are, you know, just... I don't know. Maybe it's 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 possible. Because the first time I saw it, I, I kind of came away. I will go back to... I'm going to say maybe not because... Remember, my thin memories of my one previous viewing did not have me clamoring to rewatch it at all. Right, sure. So, and I don't think mine would have either had I not been obviously going to watch it, you know, a couple of times for the show. You know, yeah, watching, as I said, I don't remember, I don't think I'd ever seen it before. Um, watching it the first time through, I came away thinking, I came away even the first time, like thinking it was, you know, already noticing problems, you know, and already noticing it's yeah. really strange because what happened with that character. So, I think I came away thinking just because of, of the actors I enjoy and the look of it and just kind of the, the, the feel of it that I was originally thinking of it as maybe a week six, like on a rating, six to ten, you know. But then once I got into analyzing it, it just kind of went down in my ratings to the point that at best, I mean, it was, it's like a five, maybe even a four, you know, when I think of the, 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 yeah. the problems yeah. with it, you know. so Well, I end, I end up giving it a five yeah. because yeah. – 
there's a certain there's a certain quality to the film that uh, I enjoy, which is just the period the period in which it was produced yeah. is something that I have an affinity for. Yeah, it's, and it's there not, are yeah. some good scene there are some good scenes in it. Yeah, it's not, um, it's, not inept, but, it's not ineptly made, and it also is not badly acted for sure. So yeah, I mean there there is this. I mean this has the feeling this that very clearly they were trying to craft a smaller film a smaller story i should say yeah than than previous invisible man stories got i mean especially the first one where it becomes you know he he honestly goes mad and starts trying and starts talking about world domination yeah but even in uh invisible agent the film before this with john hall playing a very different character we are talking about you know defending democracy from the horrors of fascism and what we see in the film is good guys versus bad guys in the very broadest sense because they they, and they play it up in you know both serious and comedic ways and that's that's all nice and good but here they're 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 kind of drawing things down into to a smaller story it's not well let's put it this way the griffin in this film he's not he's not trying to control the world he's not got world domination in his sights he's not Uh attempting to to win a war he's not trying to you know none of the bigger things it's a very base character who's just trying to take revenge on a couple of people who who he feels cheated him and that makes the story really really small yes and and that that can be really nice in uh, in these kind of stories where it's such a small story, it becomes such a small thing that you're focused in on the the interplay of the characters. But like I say, the film gets is so crippled by starting out one way and 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 kind of you know flopping around trying to be something different, softening it in so many different ways that that small the small nature of the story, the kind of um, almost. Uh, well, I, I don't want to say like uh, a chamber piece where it's you know it's small enough that it feels kind of uh, like a cozy story, something that is so self-contained that it's almost like uh, some kind of isolated, uh, you know, like isolated on an island kind of story where mm. the outside world barely interferes with it. But that is that kind of feels like that might have been what they may have been going for to a certain degree. But it that's kind of cool because that point that puts our at, I guess at best, anti-hero of Robert Griffin. I mean, he's 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 really the villain of the piece. I mean, he really but, is. Yeah, he's he's yeah. And again, probably that probably was not the original intention, but yeah, that's how it comes out. You know, that's how it ultimately the plays out. Is he 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 really is? You know, there's really nothing redeemable about his character. No, no. There's you, once the movie starts, and especially this being a 1940s film. Uh, any any viewer of any of any uh, intelligence or, or wit knows we're just waiting to watch this guy get killed. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. you know whether uh, let, let's let's see how how is he going to be? Is he going to fall from a cliff? Is he going to be hit by a car? Mm-hmm. Is you know what what's going to happen? And uh, you know, death by dog is is my preferred way of going out if you're going to do <laughs> it. So that's cool. I don't mind that. <laughs> savaged, savaged by the beast. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> savaged by the canine beast. <laughs> Oh, good lord. Well, I I I think we agree this is this this is a film that's always going to be uh, uh probably a 4 but that I end up giving a 5 because of what I what I the, the elements I enjoy about it kind of mm-hmm. overwhelm my critical faculties to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh, but 
it's it's a weak way for this series to end, and I'm I'm kind of sad that it does end this way. Um, Me too. You know, I'm 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 glad you know I'm glad the the. <laughs> I'm glad the uh, the actors got paid and yeah. did as good a job as they could do with yeah. the work provided in front of them. But this is uh, this is this is an unfortunate end to this Invisible Man series, and and it's kind of sad to to finally come to one of these films where I have to kind of point out that I just don't think it's particularly good. No. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of sad to be able to say that there I could I can find some good things to say about it but overall not a lot no so. same here sorry folks if you're fans if you are fans then please we want to hear your opinion you know call us out on you know tell us why we're wrong you know yeah please do I would be very curious to hear from people who really 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 do like this movie because uh, I would love to hear defenses of uh, the things within it. Who knows? Maybe there are people out there who really do love this film, and I I, 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 I would like I would like to hear a, a a solid defense of. I mean, maybe for you, maybe for someone who likes this film, maybe the the uh, drifting back and forth between the the harder and softer versions of the story being told is uh, is something that you find enjoyable and something that you find to be maybe just a real benefit to the film overall. If so, please let us know. I'd, I'd, I'd love to get that kind of point of view with, uh, you know, with somebody backing up that kind of a defense of the film. That would be great. I would love to, I would love to hear from somebody on that res- in that respect, because if there is someone out there who can improve my opinion of this film, man, please sing out. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I have, I have no problem. I would love to know. Well, let's take a quick look at uh, critics corner. Always, 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 always fun. Uh, we're going to take a look at some contemporary reviews here. Uh, let's start with the New York Herald Tribune, June 10th, 1942, bylined by Howard Barnes. This has a complicated plot, the usual occult physical mumbo-jumbo. Okay, I'm going to pause here. Yeah. That's a weird use of the word occult. It really is. Anyway. I don't know that. Yeah. Mumbo jumbo, yes. Occult, eh, perhaps not. Yeah. Baloney, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it says, and more than a touch, and more than a touch of violence. For all of that, it is a sing- it is singularly unexciting. John Fulton's special ph- photography is the most striking aspect of the picture, but the tricks have been done too often before by the camera to make them particularly effective by themselves. Okay, okay. Harrison's Reports, 1944. A fairly good program melodrama. It has been produced well and has enough novelty, excitement, and even comedy to satisfy melodrama-loving audiences. And I think that it would be a good point uh, at which to uh, to make, take note of the fact that the guy who directed this, who I think does an okay job, I don't think he does an exceptional job, but I primarily know Ford Beebe for his work on uh, on cereals yeah, uh, yeah. A, lot a lot of cereals yeah a lot of jungle and, films, uh, a lot of cereals some westerns not yeah but not much horror other than you know he did night monster which we've already seen you know in our series. yeah and then the phantom creeps but otherwise not a whole lot in the horror genre and, you know hey he worked on buck rogers and flash gordon cereals yeah. at universal yeah. and you know can't can't complain about those because yeah. lord knows i love them dearly uh, yeah. i mean he made uh flash gordon's trip to mars uh, the Green Hornet. Um, those are those are fun serials, man. You're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna go wrong with those. I mean, he was he he got to start making uh, 
work, working on silent films and then directing a lot of silent films before moving into that. He did, he, he directed the, uh, the first, the first place I probably ever saw his name quite honestly was he directed the phantom creeps mm-hmm. from 1939, the, the serial. And of course, which was, you know, chopped into a couple of, uh, a couple of feature film versions as well. Yeah. He had, he had a, he had a long career, but the thing is, I think that there's a certain, there's a certain stamp that you come to these kinds of films with as a director that keeps you from elevating the material. You're you're very much you know you're very much good at getting the camera in place, getting the actors in place, getting the shot done, and moving on more than you are in trying to elevate the material. And I think that if and I'm not trying to be mean spirited here because like I say I've got a lot of uh, there's a lot to praise about Ford BB's work in other movies. But I think I do wonder what it might have been like if somebody with a little bit more, maybe somebody younger mm-hmm. with something to prove, yeah, was given this assignment. Well, you know, good point. Yeah, good question. Oh, but at any rate, let's go back. Let's see. Uh, the New York World Telegram, June 1944. Some of the earlier variations of W. Uh, I'm sorry, of H.G. Wells' Invisible Man idea were filmed with an idea that the story should make good sense. <laughs> that policy has been abandoned this time. <laughs> John Hall in his invisibility is a much more effective actor than he has been in some of his recent adventures in gaudy Technicolor. <laughs> Ooh, that's 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 mean spirit. That's it is. that's uh, that, that that's good. That's good bile. I like that. Uh-huh. That's the that's the best bile. Uh-huh. Let's go with uh, New York Times, June tenth, nineteen forty four. Bosley. Bosley. I was hoping Bosley would show up. Chime in here, Bosley. A mild exercise in trick photography, just plain old-fashioned ham. Unfortunately, trick photography is not sufficient to maintain a whole film, and this one reveals quite plainly that you don't see much when you see an invisible man. Oh, wow. (laughs) I like that. That's That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm going to give Bosley the final word there, because, strangely enough, for one of the very few times, I'm going to agree with Bosley. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think Bosley was on point on that one there. But, um. On point. So, um, overall, neither of us were really impressed. I honestly, I don't know what gave me this impression, Troy, but there was something that you said in a text or a message back and forth with me in the past week or two that made me think that you had... Um, that you had watched the film and that you had that you had enjoyed it, and I thought, man, this may be the first film that we kind of split on with you enjoying it more than I do. But no, no, we are uh, well. I, I think we're I, in agreement here. Yeah, I think what I said was, um, I think what I what I said and what I, what I meant and maybe didn't imply was I. Th- well, I think what I said was that it's going to be fun digging into the film. Not necessarily meaning I just meant that there was a lot to talk about, which admittedly there is. But I think what I meant was all those that just craziness in the plot and those things that don't work and like we've talked about. So yeah, that probably did come off as sounding. I was, uh, I was enthusiastic from the prospect that, that maybe I really enjoyed or really liked the film and you were probably already thinking like, well, time to find a new co-host. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, no one else has been sucker enough to, I mean, uh, kind enough, kind enough. Kind enough. That's the word to uh, to go through all of these 1940s Universal horror films with me, and uh, so the fact that I've been able to drag you kicking and screaming through the muck, uh, and and soon and soon we will re-enter, you know, Mummy Land after yeah. a couple of more detours. Uh, you know, hey, 
you you signed on and it's 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 like it's like a bad marriage we're going to hang on for the kids <laughs> and the kids in this respect are whoever's listening to us talk about these damn movies that's so, right that's right <laughs> we're still together for you for all of you it's your fault <laughs> There's no love left in this relationship at all. But uh, there, we just love the movies sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's probably good that I, when you invited me to join the series that I didn't uh, take a peek ahead at how just how many films actually fall under that series. I, I, you know, I was just, you said it and I was thinking, oh yeah, you know, the Frankenstein films and the Wolfman films and the Invisible Man films and, you know, and and, uh, yep. and I didn't. So yeah, I, 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 it could be I might have, might have hesitated a little bit, uh, but, but no. <laughs> if I realized it was like hundreds and hundreds of films, but uh, but no, it's it's been it's a blast. It's a fun. Day. I'm just so glad it's it's made me see a lot of films that I probably would have never gotten around to seeing. So uh, I've really been enjoying. Well, speaking of that, let's talk about what's next, next yes. on our list here. Um, sticking uh, sticking to the the Universal Horrors book, the next film in the series that we are we're going to lurch ourselves toward is uh, another 1944 film. It's going to be a while before we're out of those folks. Uh, but it's one that neither you or I have seen. We've already discussed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are upcoming a couple of, of harder to see films that definitely do not fall within the uh, the mummy or Sherlock Holmes or even the Inner Sanctum uh, series of films. Uh, this one is probably the biggest outlier of the ones that we're going to see for the rest of 1944. This is a film called Ghost Catchers, which came out in the summer of that year. I have never seen it. You have never seen it. I would assume and by as the... far as I can tell, yeah. almost no one has ever seen it. <laughs> well, I would, assume, uh, I would assume by that title I would be right in guessing it's probably a comedy, I would imagine. Yes, yes, I... I dread to tell you that it is. It is an Olson and Johnson ghost comedy. It's uh, sometimes been described as whimsical. Uh, I uh, have also seen it described as painful, and so I am not looking forward <laughs> to this. Whimsical is one of those terms that people throw out when they really would rather say something else, but they want to be nice. Yeah. And the fact yeah. that the yeah. fact that it's a comedy team that I also have never heard of also tells me doesn't bode well for you know doesn't. Uh, well, I, I had heard of them, but that's only because I do so much damn reading about the films okay. from this period of time. Uh, basically, they they were um, they were movers and shakers in uh, Hell's a Poppin. Oh, okay. Yeah, they they were in uh, the the films of those. So their names are associated with Hell's a Poppin. Uh, it was a stage show that they yeah. were involved in, and then they sh- and then they uh, they were able to to shift into the the film okay. with that as well. And so there's um, well, there's a there's a lot to there's, I, I suspect there's going to be a lot to talk about in the film that is very interesting, as opposed to the film itself being very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks, there are ways to see Ghost Catchers from 1944 out there on the web. I'm not going to point particular fingers, but those with uh, a search engine might be able to locate them if one knows exactly what to do, or maybe even just can type the title Ghost Catchers 1944 into any search engine at all, and you might stumble across it. I recommend, if you want to follow along, uh, doing so with every caveat that I can throw around. Mm-hmm. That, you know, a 1940s comedy that almost no one has seen probably bodes ill. <laughs> We're not going to end up with... I, I Well, uh, okay... I'm going to be 
as, as, as negative as we've been about the film we're discussing tonight, I'm just going to try to be very positive while talking about our next movie in this series and say, who knows? Yes. Could be an undiscovered or underseen gem. Yeah, let's, go let's in keep with our open, fingers crossed. Yeah, go in with open mind and uh, a good senses of humor. Be prepared to guffaw and yeah. chortle to the uh, utmost over this one and hope, hope for the best. So, yes. Uh, let, let's put it this way. When I finally got around to seeing a Wheeler and Woolsey film, after having heard for years that I was going to feel the the leaden pain of of awful comedy, I actually ended up laughing a good a bit a good bit. Yeah. So maybe maybe I'll get surprised here as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, folks. Uh, Troy, once again, thank you for joining me to do this. Possibly the longest series on any on any podcast ever. <laughs> and. Uh, for that, I thank you and I apologize. For anyone out there who wants to make a defense, uh, spirited or otherwise, of The Invisible Man's Revenge, please, thebloodypit at gmail.com is where you can send those messages and we would be happy to read them. Yep. Give us a, you know, get, drop us a note about uh, anything on the show, um, any of the past episodes we've done, the uh, the Christmas episode this past year, or the, uh, the um, very popular episode that uh, precedes this one about uh, the devil's wedding night. Boy, are people enjoying that one. Oh, are they? That's good. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a... Well, that was... Man, yeah, good. Quite a lot of people downloading that show and talking about it. So uh, we know we, we know we know exactly how to attract more viewers. Yeah. Uh, talk about films with copious amounts of nudity. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everyone, thank you very much for uh, checking out the show. Uh, next time Troy and I talk will probably be the ghost catchers. I don't know if we're going to schedule in something in before then with someone else. Um, but, uh, we are also, also, uh, making plans for, uh, another episode of the Nashi cast here in the near future where we might be talking about, strangely enough, a werewolf film. Imagine that. Ah, can't imagine. Can't imagine. Uh, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to comprehend how we would on the Nashi cast talk about a werewolf film, but it may just happen. I swear. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you have anything to say, the email address has been given to you before. I'll say it again: thebladepit at gmail Thank you very much for listening. My name is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn, and we will talk to you again soon.